Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. Um, we've been, over the, the last several weeks, reminding ourselves of the essentials of the faith because we've been reminded that championship teams are those teams that have mastered the essentials or the fundamentals of whatever their game is. And so I've reminded you often of that great dynasty in Green Bay that I cannot stand, but who managed to put the ugly beat down on the Kansas City Chiefs in Super Bowl One because their incredible coach, Vince Lombardi, had said, no flashy plays, no trick plays, no none of that. We will block, we will tackle, we will throw, we will run, we will catch, and we will do each of those things better than anybody else. And it turned them into what is truly a football dynasty. They still write books about those teams. The Church of Jesus Christ in modern America is not on a winning streak, but we're going to be because we are returning to the essentials of our faith and focusing upon them. And so whatever happens in other sanctuaries around the country today, I do not know. But I know what's going to happen in this one this week and for the rest of the weeks of this summer is we are going to drill down deep into the fundamentals of our faith so that whenever the next test comes, we cannot be shaken. And whenever the next opportunity comes, we will have the strength and the knowledge and the wisdom to step forward confidently in the name of Jesus to meet that challenge and overcome it. Are you with me this morning? Good, good. Now, I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to tell you a little story. I got a, a lot of them that came from our ministry in North Lewiston. It was about, oh, five years ago, um, on a Saturday afternoon, evening, that I was over at The Rock. And it was a special day at The Rock. We had a, a, a service um, there for a while on on Saturday evenings at The Rock. And this particular one was kind of special because the church, the Nazarene Church of Pomeroy that I mentioned earlier, where Pastor Bill's preaching today, they decided they wanted to partner with us in ministry. And so that particular day, they had invited the whole North Lewiston community to come to an old-fashioned church ice cream social. Well, nobody there knew what an old-fashioned church ice cream social was, and they didn't catch the ice cream part, so almost none of them showed up. And, uh, but a few of them did, and there were probably, I don't know, a dozen of us sitting around uh, a table eating ice cream and then turning our attention to the scriptures. It was a good day for me because my daughter Faith had gone with me, and she was sitting at the far end of the tables that we had uh, set up there. And it just so happens that in the, the, the process of the things that we were studying that week, we were going to be talking about the virgin birth of Jesus. And so I read a passage of scripture from Luke chapter 1, in which the angel of the Lord appeared to a young girl named Mary, still a virgin, and announced to her that she would be with child. She would become pregnant, but not in the biological way that every other person on the planet had ever become pregnant, but by a miraculous conception engineered by the Holy Spirit of God. And I don't know how many, I mean, I know a bunch of you that did ministry over in North Lewis, and I don't know among the rest of you if you know exactly the flavor of the ministry over there, but let's just say that some of the interested locals had shown up that day, and church people swallow the virgin birth like it's no big deal. But when, when I read that section of scripture, there was a guy who said, whoa, 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 wait. What happened? I said, well, this, this, this young girl who, um, 
who was about the age of my daughter, who was 14 at the time, I pointed over at Faith, said about the age of my daughter, became pregnant, but not by sex, but by the decision and miraculous work of God the Holy Spirit. And he looked at me and said, what the hell? (laughs) I think it's North Lewiston for amen or something. Um, Not exactly, not exactly, but something like that. And uh, we had a really fun discussion over the next few minutes about the virgin birth of Jesus and why in the world that matters and, uh, and whether or not it's actually true. And I'm just going to tell you that, uh, pardon the language, but I think, honestly, a little what the, is a reasonable response Whenever a human being looks at somebody else and says, yeah, there was, she was pregnant, but there was no, you know, it's all pure and right and good. Everybody should cock their head just a little bit and go, what? When we talk about this thing, the virgin birth of Jesus. When we get to uh, the, the end of the service, we're going to serve Holy Communion. We're going to confess our faith together again just before we do that in, in reading the Apostles' Creed. But uh, if you've been with us for part or all of this journey, you'll know that we started off with this belief in, in, in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And the next line of the confession says, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And it should leave every person scratching their head just a little bit, even when you've accepted it, even when by faith you have swallowed this thing whole, even when for years you have been saying, yep, 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 still should make you do this a little bit. Because this statement of our faith is either the most obvious lie ever told to humanity or it is an absolute, unequivocal miracle worked by God. There is no room in between those two options other than it's just true. It's just true. Now, The Church of Jesus Christ believes that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And this very thing, because it is so difficult to believe, because it's either a ridiculous lie or this incredible miracle of God that is absolutely true, because it it, it lies in those extreme kind of categories, this doctrine of the church often comes under scrutiny by those who do not share our faith. And these days, it comes under the scrutiny of those who confess belief in Jesus, but say, come on, science has helped us to understand that this really only happens one way. And so many Christians today say, well, I mean, could it really? So today, what I want to do with the time that, that I have left is that I want to help you get acquainted with, uh, with a couple of things. With some of the arguments against the virgin birth, some, se- some things that would, would seem to indicate that it isn't true. And then help you see the consequences of accepting those things as true. 
And then I want to help you see some of the arguments that support the doctrine of the virgin birth and the uh, consequences or benefits of, um, of actually accepting and believing those things, okay? So if uh, somewhere along the way you've still got a what the in your mind, okay, let's, let's dig in here and, and see what it is that, that is offered to us. First, let's start with the arguments against the virgin birth. And you know the first one, it's just biologically impossible, right? I mean, if somebody comes and says, I'm pregnant, but I didn't do anything, we all go, uh-huh. Right. Um, you need a biology lesson, and uh, you're busted, and we know it. It's biologically impossible, and both Christians and unbelievers alike point to that and say, sorry, you're out of luck. It's biologically impossible. It's also the case that people then who want to take it past that first very obvious kind of argument, they, they tend to look at uh, and a handful of other things. And and especially those who, uh, who are like arguing with us seriously at the level of our faith and, and, and really digging into our own scriptures to see whether or not these kinds of things are true, um, they actually do some pretty good work here. And I think it's important for us to consider some of the biblical arguments against the notion of the virgin birth. At the beginning of the New Testament, we have four books. These four books, as I've mentioned time and time again, are four different life stories of Jesus, four different versions of Jesus' life and teachings. They are told by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, one of his disciples. John, one of his closest disciples. Mark, kind of a second-generation believer, but who paid very, very, very close attention, was kind of a protege to the apostle Peter. And then Luke, who was a medical doctor and uh, a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. Yeah, you know, the second half of that first generation of of first-century believers. But a very, very intelligent and educated man who said, though I never met Jesus, though I was not one of his original followers, I have applied myself to the very careful study of the story of Jesus, and I'm setting down for you a very ordered account of his life, okay? Four different versions of the life of Jesus. Those who argue against the doctrine of the virgin birth um, use the four gospels to kind of, you know, um, take a shot at, at the doctrine because they tell us if there was anything that was more important than a, than a child being born by the Holy Spirit and a virgin, to try to kind of set the stage for him being God, we can't imagine what that better argument would be. Does that make sense to you? It's one of the greatest claims to establishing that Jesus is actually God. And so if it's that important, don't you think it should show up in all four of the life stories of Jesus? And it doesn't. In fact, it shows up in Matthew and it shows up in Luke. It does not show up in the gospel of Mark. And remember, Mark was the protege of the apostle Peter, one of Jesus' very best friends. It does not show up in the gospel of John, John also being one of the the closest followers of Jesus. Those who are looking to to, um, argue against this doctrine also take a look at the rest of the New Testament. And anywhere that uh, the Apostle Paul is writing, he leaves out any mention that Jesus was, in fact, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And so those who are going to use scriptures to build a case against the virgin birth do so, quite frankly, we have have to say this pretty effectively, by saying two of the Gospels don't even mention it. And then the guy who wrote half of the New Testament, trying to convince 
all of the Mediterranean world, that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world, didn't even mention it. We Christians who confess faith that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary have to look at those arguments and say, hmm, because there's some merit to them. Don't you think? Don't you think? I mean, I think, I think it bears mentioning, okay? All right, so if we look at those things, it's biologically impossible the writer of half of the New Testament didn't even mention it. Half of the, write of the biographers of Jesus didn't even mention it. Uh, maybe we'll just take the virgin birth and put it over here as I don't know whether you can believe it. Now listen, if you're going to do that, I think you should also be informed of some of the consequences of accepting those arguments and that belief. Okay? Because if Jesus is not born of a virgin, or rather, if Jesus is not conceived by the Holy Spirit, if he's just simply born with one human parent, then Jesus is all human and only human. A lot of people don't have a problem with that because they see Jesus as this great religious figure of antiquity. They see him as a moral teacher par excellence. They look back and say, even, hmm, maybe he was a miracle worker, but you don't have to be a God to do that. Maybe God gives humans special powers to do such things. But if we believe this, if we accept this notion that Jesus was not conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, then we must also concede that he is human and only human, and therefore he is left with only human abilities and powers to affect change in this world. But there's another problem and a bigger problem with pushing aside the virgin birth as unbelievable, and it's this. It's that if Jesus was born only of humans and therefore was only human and claimed to be God, then Jesus wasn't good. He wasn't a good teacher. He wasn't a good example. He wasn't a good anything except for a good liar. And good and liar are words that we just don't use together because they are antithetical. See, throughout the New Testament, throughout the, the four Gospels, the four biographies of Jesus, we see time and time and time again that Jesus was the Son of God and therefore a divine being, an actual God come and living in human flesh. And if Jesus claimed it and it wasn't true, then Jesus is a liar, not the Savior. You've, uh, you've been told many times, I'm sure, of uh, that great quote by C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and so many other uh, Christian classics, where he says simply this, that if either Jesus is exactly who he says he is, or he's a lunatic or a liar. He's either crazy as a loon or dishonest. He's one of those two things. There's also the possibility that it might be Lord, lunatic, liar, or, or, or Lord. And if, and if he's Lord, then the things that he claimed about himself are actually true. Christians have confessed for uh, 1,900 years anyway that Jesus was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And yet there are some arguments uh, that could be made from our own scriptures. I think I want to mention one more to you that's kind of an argument against that. This one's a little bit complicated, but if you read it all about this, if you guys go and study online, you're going to run into this. 
Um, so hang with me because this one takes a few turns. If you go back to the Old Testament, go back to the Old Testament, and, and particularly the writings of the prophet Isaiah. He wrote about 700 years before Jesus was born. Uh, several of the New Testament writers refer back to Isaiah and his prophecies and say he was actually prophesying the birth of Jesus. And so they take us back to a passage in Isaiah where it says, and a, a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a child. And you've heard it, and we've, we've sang it in um, uh, Handel's Messiah. You've, you've, you've heard all the Christmas carols that allude to it. And those who, uh, who want to do their, their Old Testament work to kind of disprove the doctrine will say that uh, it's a misinterpretation of the Isaiah text because the, the earliest New Testament writers the gospel writers, didn't have the old copies of the Old Testament that you and I do. They had, actually had Greek translations of the, New Test, of the Old Testament. It's all they'd ever seen. And that the Greek translators of the Hebrew Old Testament had mistranslated a word that meant young girl, and they rendered it virgin, and all the rest of our lives we've been building on a lie. Well, here's the thing. I looked into it, because that's a pretty significant argument. And the word that means young girl can also mean a virgin girl, okay? So I kind of have to pull the pin out from under the most convoluted of those arguments. But, but I think I still have to admit that there is some reason for people to argue with the scriptures, using the scriptures, against the scriptures, against this doctrine of belief in Jesus conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. But I would also say that there are certainly some arguments for the virgin birth, and I would say that, they're, that they are significant enough and numerous enough that they actually, if you put them on the balance against the ones that argue against, you will find that the preponderance of the biblical evidence, pardon me, is for supporting the doctrine that Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. I want to lead you through just a few of those things, and then, and then we're going to ask ourselves, what kind of a difference does it make if we've actually proved what it is that we already believe? First is this. If you go back to those first four books in the New Testament, those first four biographies of the life of Jesus, you will find that both Matthew and Luke claim it. Now listen, if you've got two independent sources that claim anything, the researchers, biblical or otherwise, say you may be onto something here. And we have two independent sources uh, stating this because Matthew and Luke didn't know of one another's work while they were writing. We know this to be the case because both of them, it seems, um, you, can, you can tell that they both knew that the gospel of Mark existed because both of them quote Mark quite extensively. Now remember, Mark was one of the Gospels that did not claim the virgin birth. Both Matthew and Luke quoted Mark extensively. They knew his work. But they also both added accounts of the virgin birth. But we'll call them independent for a second reason, and it's this. When you read the Matthew story of Jesus' life, it begins with this long genealogy that reaches all the way back to, uh, to, to primeval times. And, and generation after generation after generation after generation shows how it is that Jesus was descended from this great line of humanity that God had smiled upon the Jewish people and one particular clan or family within that nation. And then after it completes this great genealogy and brings us to this earthly guy by the name of Joseph, 
Matthew then launches into the story to tell us that Joseph is, in fact, not the biological father of Jesus. And so Matthew's version of the virgin birth has an angel coming to Matthew in a, or to, to Joseph in a dream and saying, I know you love that girl. I know that you're engaged. And I know that you guys have not been together, but she's pregnant. And I know that will break your heart. But listen, what's happened is of the Holy Spirit, not of a sinful girl. It's happened by the will and miracle of God and not a sexual abuser or lover. He said, Joseph, don't be afraid to make her your wife because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And that text goes on to tell us Joseph was a righteous man. He had a good reputation among people and now it was gonna be ruined Everything that he lived for, everything that he'd stood for, every time that he had denied himself all his life long to build this reputation of a godly man, now his reputation is going to be shattered and sullied. But having heard from God, he walked forward in faith and without fear. And he took Mary to be his wife. And the text says that he did not have sexual relationship with her until the child was born. Joseph stuck his neck way out there. Why? Because a miraculous visitor from God came to him and said, this is not what it looks like. Now, if you go two gospels later, you get, uh, you get to Luke's gospel. Luke, remember, is the medical doctor. He's the investigator. He's the guy who said, I turned over every rock I could find. I, I, I talked with all of the people who were present, anybody who was left alive from that day. He's still a first-generation believer. And he tells the story not from Joseph's side of the miraculous conception, but from Mary's side. Can you imagine that poor little girl, probably somewhere between 12 and 14 years of age when girls were given into marriage in that culture? She too had been a person who had kept herself pure. And now the whole world is going to know that she's pregnant. And the whole world is going to know that she's not yet married. And the whole world is going to form opinions about her and her husband and her her fiance. And her fiance is going to form certain opinions about her. And her parents are never going to believe her. But an angel comes to her and says, you're going to give birth to the Savior. And she's no dummy. She says, um, mom and dad already gave me the talk. We, we know what causes this now. How can it be? And this angel, given a name, Gabriel, says to her, no. Holy Spirit of God is just going to kind of overshadow you. He's just, he's just going to come and create a miraculous bubble around you in which something that has never happened before in the history of humanity will, in fact, come to pass. A virgin shall bear a son. 
This isn't like a Greco-Roman mythology. It isn't a, a, a god that, that comes and, and typically plays havoc with the human race, uh, coming in and, and, and breeding with uh, a human and producing some sort of hybrid offspring like minotaurs and centaurs. It's, it's none of that. It's still miraculous instead of physical. It's still holy instead of sinful. And it leaves the purity of that young woman intact and the integrity of her fiancé unspoiled and their reputation still destroyed because people don't want to believe good things about other people. Huh? Yeah. Both Matthew and Luke write pretty involved and detailed stories in which they claim that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and they are not working off of one another's accounts. There's independent attestation to this incredible miracle, one who apparently had interviewed Joseph and the other who had interviewed Mary. Matthew and Luke both claim it, but give very differing accounts. We also find in those four biographies of Jesus, that Jesus himself often claimed that he was God. Now, many times, he played him really close to his vest. He would work miracles and then say to to the person who received the miracle, don't tell anybody, because people will start arriving at the conclusion of who I am, and it's not time to deal with that whole mess. But he would often work miracles, demonstrations of the power of God that had never been seen before in recorded human history and would say, shh. But other times, he brought that same power and put it on display publicly in front of crowds of thousands and let them come to the inevitable, inescapable conclusion that God is at least on the scene working through this person. And then to remove any doubt, Jesus from time to time would say things like, I'm the son of God. And if God is your father in the literal sense, and you are his son in the literal sense, then you too are a God. In fact, one of those Gospels, one of those four biographies of Jesus, the fourth one, the Gospel according to John, Jesus' very close personal friend, John tells us that his whole purpose in writing that book was so that he could convince anyone who would read it that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, and that if you would come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you, too, could have eternal life in relationship with him. He wasn't trying to just set up some forensic uh, case so that at the end he could say, aha, see, we're right. Instead, he wrote his whole book working with God, the, the Holy Spirit himself, with this sacred task in mind that anybody who would read it with an open heart and an open mind could see the working of the life of Jesus And by the end of the story, come to believe that there is something legitimate to this claim that Jesus is, in fact, God in human flesh. And that if you could believe that one thing, that suddenly spiritual life will come welling up within you and you will experience life differently than you ever have before. And it will be the seed of a growing relationship with 
the God Almighty that we said we believed in in the creed in weeks previously. Yes, hallelujah. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus claimed that he was the Son of God. It's also interesting that in Matthew and Mark and Luke, not in John's gospel, but in those first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have record of, uh, of stories where Jesus was casting out demons. Do you remember some of those stories, Jesus casting demons out of people? Matthew and Mark and Luke all contain stories in which Jesus confronted the evil spirits and the evil spirits said, we know who you are, you're the son of God. The e- get, get this, not the bystanders speculating, but the evil spirits themselves said, we know who you are. Leave us alone, go easy on us, step back just a little bit. Will you give us a little bit of slack? Because they recognized the power of the almighty God resident within the man, Jesus Christ. And they shook in their boots. And while they made all their requests, in the end, they did exactly what he commanded them to do because he's the God. And if Jesus is the God, then he was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the virgin. It's also the case that the Pharisees had some idea that this was true. They were at least acquainted with this, with this uh, claim that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, because there's one story in the Gospels where they've tried to, they've tried to out-religion him. They've, they've questioned him about the law, and he always wins the arguments. They've questioned him about his identity, and he said, I'm God. They question about all these things, and they always end up losing the argument. So one time, they just came and played dirty pool. They, they started an argument with him, and Jesus said, you know what your problem is? Your pro- you keep arguing against all these good things that I'm doing. You keep arguing against this salvation that I claim to be bringing. You keep arguing about the kingdom of God coming and being at hand, close enough that you can grab a hold of it and lay hold of it and live in it. You're arguing against all these good things. And you know why? It's because God is not your father. You're sons of the devil himself. You're you're illegitimate children at best. The Pharisees went, huh. Well, since you brought it up, we're not, we're not the people with the illegitimacy issue. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Now listen, Jesus is a lot better than Cliff Purcell. He talked bad about my mama. I will poke ugly hurt knots on your head. And Jesus made his point a different way. Claiming to be a son of the most high God. Leave mama out of this. There's some, there's some legitimacy to arguing against the virgin birth by looking at some pieces that might be missing in the argument in the New Testament. Some, some question about the validity of the translation of an Old Testament passage. But the preponderance of the evidence in the Bible, Old and New Testaments, is that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He was conceived by God's Holy Spirit and a virgin girl named Mary 2,000 years ago in ancient Palestine. 
And if you might possibly come to believe after reading all of John's gospel, this whole book written just for the purpose of convincing you that he's the son of God, if you read Matthew's version, if you read Mark's version, if you read Luke's version, and you come to the conclusion that this Jesus was more than just a maniac and more than just a good moral teacher, that there was something unmistakably God-like manifested in his character and manifested in his actions, and you dare to believe that he was, in fact, the Son of God, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. There's some consequences to that belief. Let me talk to you about them. First is this. If, if it's the case that Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit and, and a virgin, then he is both God and human. Historically, folks in the church have argued about this. They've wanted to say, well, he's, you can't be both, or you can't be... You can't be a, a crossbreed or, or a hybrid, so he's either God or he's man. And, and the church historically has hung together and said, no, you don't have to be either. Jesus wasn't. He was, he was fully God and he was fully man. And one of the consequences of, of having one human being parent and one God parent is that the child is going to be what? Human and divine right? That math works for us. Shake your heads like this if the math works for you. Okay. But beyond the, the, the consequence of the nature of God, that he's, of, of Christ, that he's fully God and he's fully man, beyond those things, the consequences bring great benefits to those of us who believe. Let me talk to you about those for just a moment. The first is this, that if Jesus is both a God and a man, let's talk about the, the benefit of the man part, the human part. If Jesus is human, then he can identify with your struggles and mine. Listen, the gospel that makes clear that Jesus was God also makes clear that he's very human. And so one of the New Testament writers, he wrote uh, what's called the Epistle to the Hebrews. It's way late in the, in the New Testament. He, he kind of seizes this, he or she, seizes this idea and, and works with it quite a bit and says, in fact... It had to be the case that, that Jesus would be both God and human in order for him to come to recognize the struggles that you and I face. Otherwise, if he's only God, he's going to look at these things and not be able to sympathize, not be able to empathize, and probably suffer a serious lack of motivation for believing us when we say, God, it's too hard. God, it's too painful. God, I'm weak. But Jesus, the writer to the Hebrews says, was tempted in every way just as you are and I am. Yet did not sin. writer to the Hebrews goes to great length, great lengths to help us understand that Jesus is able to sympathize with us and not just feel sad, but to actually go to work 
talking to God the Father, interceding for us, getting up in God's ear and saying, I know you haven't been there. I know you haven't ever felt weakness. I know you haven't ever felt physical pain. You're a spiritual being, but you sent me. I was fully God. I was fully human. And I entered into the entire human experiment. And I'm telling you, Father, it isn't easy. And those who are down there crying and struggling and hoping and calling out to you, you have got to give ear to what they say and you've got to help them today. The virgin birth matters because it doesn't work for us to have a God just visit the planet, pretend that he's a man, and then go away because he can't ever know what it's like for us. We don't have a high priest, the book of Proverbs says, or Hebrews says, who is unable to sympathize. We've got one who sympathizes with us and does the work of intercession. Yeah. If he's human, then he can identify with our struggle. If he's divine, then he can overcome our struggle. That's the good news, is that we're not just left in it with a, with a God going, well, that's too bad. Instead, we have a God who comes, a Jesus who comes and brings the full power of the Godhead and says, let's go to work on that issue. Let's take care of these things in your life. Let's, let's go to work on the systems that are broken in our world. Let's, let's tackle injustice. And there is power enough in Jesus and therefore in the people of Jesus to overcome the struggle against sin, both our own and that of the systems in the world around us. And you better say amen to that because it's the truth and it's the transforming power of God made available to us. And it is the hope and the whole reason that we want anything to do with this. If Jesus doesn't change the possibilities, then what good is he? But he's God. And he brings all of his godness to bear on our situation and gives it to us to use in this world for the good of our neighbors. Praise his holy name. Praise his holy name. Finally, finally, if he's both God and man, he's a God who can become a savior. He's a God who can become a savior because gods can't die, but humans can't. And Jesus came in his humanity and laid down his life on the cross. Suffered fully, got no anesthetic. He didn't get to to pull the God card so that he didn't suffer for that period. He did the whole thing as a human and a God. Paul, the guy who never claimed the virgin birth, said he didn't said that Jesus didn't see equality with God something to hold on to. So, he emptied himself, let go of it. And did this thing really as a human. In so doing, the innocent human became the sacrifice for all the guilty ones. Are you grateful for that? I am. Listen, what I'm proclaiming to you this morning is the salvation of the human race, made possible by Jesus, who is both God and man. God from eternity past planned the the plan of salvation, and then he sneaked into the human race. And he accomplished from the human side that anyone who dares to believe that Jesus is the son of the living God, can have life in connection with him. 
Would you stand with me, please? Luke, why don't you put the Apostles' Creed on the screen? And let's confess our faith together today as we conclude. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Lord, you have heard the confession of our lips, and we have received the message from yours. Bless you, holy God, for making salvation possible and the gift of faith given to each of us as well. It stretches us to get our heads and hearts wrapped around this notion, Jesus, of just who you are. But thank you for your patience with us while you wait and for for helping us, Lord, to see it. We now invite you, Lord Jesus, to bring your godhood to bear on our lives, that we might become believable examples of your love, your holy love to the world around us. In Christ's name we pray. God's people together said, amen. Go in the strength and the peace of God.